Well, fall time is an exciting time as we prepare for the holidays, and I get real excited for November. It's my mom's birthday's in November, Thanksgiving's in November, but there's something really cool about November is that I get to snag one of my buddies who is on an annual surf trip with a bunch of his buddies, so you notice some of the men here. Um, but Paul Twist has been uh, with us for, I think, three years now, Paul. Um, and many of you probably don't know this, but I was trying to get Paul to come up and be a pastor here even before I, I came up here. So we had taken a trip together up to the Monterey area, and I was trying to convince him to, to come and be a pastor here to plant a church. So we'll take this. I mean, once a year, that works for me. Uh, I'm thankful for Pastor Twist. He is uh, the lead pastor, the teaching pastor of Bethany Bible in Thousand Oaks. We first met uh, at the seminary as he was my uh, Greek professor. And just since then, we've kicked it off. I love this brother's heart, his knowledge of the word, his ability to explain the word. Uh, so I've benefited greatly, not just from his classes, but from our friendship, um, which you need to know about Paul. Um, first and foremost, he's married to his lovely wife, Laura, and they have six kids. Paul, what's the range? Your oldest is 14 down to five. So he's a busy guy, like many of you, with lots of kids, chasing them down, all homeschooled. Um, but Paul, he uh, is teaching there at TMS still, in addition to pastoring his church. I'm going to rattle off a couple of accolades just real quickly so you can hear a little bit of this brother's dedication to the Word of God. Uh, he holds a PhD in Old Testament studies from Queen's University in Belfast, Ireland. He's got his Master's of Divinity and Master's of Theology, TMS. But in addition to that, he holds a a mechanical engineering degree from Cambridge University. And so he is pretty intimidating uh, when you look at his resume, but you wouldn't get that at all because he's just a super down-to-earth guy who loves the Lord and loves the church and has loved our family well. And so I'm super thankful that he's back with us to open up the Word of God. So Paul, would you please come up here and bless us as we hear from the Lord. Well, it's my pleasure uh, to be with you this Sunday. Um, as Dom said, it's around about this time every year that we come up here on a ministry trip. It's not called a surf trip. It's a ministry trip. <laughs> and it just so happens there are some surfboards in the van. And uh, it's always a glorious weekend, not least because it's around about that time of year when we get an extra hour of sleep on the Sunday morning. So that's great. Uh, but especially because... We get to see every year just how the Lord is blessing the ministry here. Um, I've known Dom for some years now, as he said, and we don't get to see each other face-to-face -face nearly as often as I would like. But we keep in touch throughout the year, and, and uh, I'm so thankful for his friendship. And it is an encouragement just to come here once a year, Lord willing, and to see all that's happening in the church uh, by God's grace. And we're thankful for that. Uh, so it really is a joy to be with you this morning and uh, to be opening God's Word with you. With the Saints at Bethany, we've been working through Matthew's Gospel on Sunday mornings, and so I want to share with you this morning a sermon from Matthew chapter 6. If you have a Bible, please turn there with me. I'll read Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on our 
time in his word. So Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who see who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we have worshipped you this morning in song, as we have worshipped you in prayer, and even in our fellowship, we pray now that we would worship you through our study of your word. Would you lead our hearts that you would be magnified? We pray this through our mediator, who is Christ. Amen. Every passage is determined to some degree by its context. The meaning of a text is determined to some extent by its context. And when we read these familiar words in Matthew chapter 6, it's so important that we stand back and understand the flow of thought of the Sermon on the Mount, where they come in that famous sermon. It's particularly instructive to note that Jesus says these words after a long section throughout chapter 5 where he has been exhorting his disciples to a greater righteousness. The previous section began in 517, and one of the key verses there is verse 20, where Jesus says to those who would follow him, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's speaking there not about moral perfection. He's exhorting his disciples to a righteousness that is greater in its essence, in its quality, not necessarily in its quantity. It is a greater righteousness than that practiced by the scribes and the Pharisees because it issues from a new heart. And then Jesus gives lots of examples of what that greater righteousness would be like. He speaks about anger, about lust, about divorce, about keeping your word, about retaliation, love for your enemies. He gives to us what really is the ground zero of the Christian ethic. And at the end of that, he begins a new section by saying, be careful. Be careful of practicing this righteousness. It is a dangerous thing 
to live righteously. There are inherent dangers to submitting to Jesus' command to live in a way that is righteous. And the danger, foremost among those dangers, concerns your motive. What is your motive in pursuing such righteous deeds? Jesus warns against doing these things for the praise of men. If you go about your life externally obeying the commands of Christ, doing righteous deeds, but internally seeking the praise of men, Jesus says you will have no reward when you enter into glory. And so it is a dangerous position to be. His exhortation by way of several examples is to conduct your life with, as we might call it, a hidden righteousness. A hidden righteousness. How is it that we could possibly live in such a manner to truly go about our Christian walk, not seeking the praise of men, but desiring to honor our Father who is in heaven? The answer is you understand the truth of the gospel, that you have a Father who loves you completely in Christ, and therefore you don't need to seek the praise of men. Now, the structure of the text is very simple. In verse 1, Jesus issues the warning, and then he gives instruction by way of three examples, giving to the needy, praying, and then the third example actually comes in verse 16 as he speaks about fasting. Three examples centered around the same principle, and then we have that interruption in the flow of thought with the Lord's Prayer in verses 7 through 15. And so this morning I want to consider just the first two examples with you. So we'll look at Jesus' warning in verse 1 and then the instruction that he gives by way of two examples, giving to the needy and praying. Beginning with the warning, Jesus says, again, after a lengthy exhortation toward a greater righteousness in chapter 5, he then says, be careful. Be, Be wary. Pay attention. There's an imperative there that comes straight off of the back of the exhortation, and it is important for us to simply stop and acknowledge how subtle sin can be. The fact that Jesus has to teach his disciples to be careful about practicing righteousness is a helpful reminder of just how subtle our sin can be. It will find a way to flesh itself out in your life however it possibly can, even through acts of righteousness. It is not simply that by getting yourself under the commands of chapter 5, your job is now done as a disciple. Far from it because there is the issue of motive. It is a new kind of subtle sin that Jesus addresses here at this portion in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, the great physician, knowing our hearts, understands that we are so prone to do righteous things, and yet our motive can be entirely dishonoring to God. So now consider the tension 
that Jesus introduces into the Sermon on the Mount. Look back at chapter 5, verse 18, and see there how Jesus says, excuse me, 516, let your light shine. It was not that long ago within the same sermon that Jesus commanded all those who would follow him to live out their faith publicly. Let your light shine, he says. As he goes through the examples of what greater righteousness would look like, many of them are inherently connected to life in the public marketplace. He talks about not retaliating when somebody slaps you on the cheek. By contrast, you turn the other cheek. He talks about going the extra mile. These are examples that he gives whereby he expects his disciples to not be hidden away, but to be out there amongst the world, allowing the truths of the gospel to be oozing through their words and their conduct. And with that in place, he now says, You need to be really careful because of the issue of motive. And understand this problem, this danger of living righteously is so subtle and so potent, not least because we can't see one another's motive. The danger of living righteously comes about, at least in part, because we cannot see the motive that is embedded in our hearts. You can serve in all manner of ways in this church, and it may appear to others that you're living a very godly life. But who's to say what your motive is nestled in your heart? Now, why would it be such a concern for Jesus to address this? Why is he so concerned to speak to his disciples about the the fault of seeking the praise of men because of just how dishonoring it is to God? To do things for the praise of men dishonors God greatly in at least one of two ways. Again, in 5.16, he says, let your light shine. But there he gives a very definite reason as to why we should live in that way. 5.16, let your light shine before others so that, here's the reason that you should let your light shine so that they, those around you, would see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The stated purpose of you living out your Christian life in the world is in order to prompt others to praise God. And there, in Jesus' day, it could very well have been that he has in mind God-fearers who aren't necessarily disciples of Christ, but affirm and believe in an almighty, holy God, and they see your righteous conduct, and they praise him for it. Or perhaps even Jesus had in mind there that your righteous conduct would so draw people to God so that their hearts are now softened and ready to receive the truth of the gospel and be saved, and that would be their act of praise. This is exactly what we see with the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 1. He writes an autobiographical account of his testimony of salvation, and he says there, they knew me as one who persecuted the Christians. The Lord saved me on the Damascus Road. Now I'm a preacher of the gospel, and they responded by praising God. 
That is how Jesus expects that we would live our lives. So now consider what it means to seek the praise of men. God gifted you the new birth. God gifted you eyes of faith to look upon Jesus and take him at his word, believing him to be the son of God, whose death makes a payment for your sin. God gifted you the faith to submit to him and to follow after him. God gifted you that spirit of repentance whereby you turn away from all that dishonors him. God gifted you the spirit to desire to serve in the local church. It's all of God. And now you would go about your work so as to receive all the praise for yourself. It is all of God. He rightly deserves the praise. And now you so manipulate your righteous deeds that you want the praise. You see, to seek the praise of men is so dishonoring to God because you are robbing him of his glory. But it doesn't stop there. The issue is yet more complex than that. It's instructive to note the examples that Jesus gives in chapter 6 of giving to the needy and of praying in public would have been culturally well-established norms, norms in society that people would, would practice, at least in part, so as to be affirmed by those around them. So to be seen to, to give to the needy, to be seen by others to pray to God would be a means by which others would accept you. They would affirm you. It would be very much a, a mechanism that you might use so as to find a sense of affirmation and security in society. So noting that, consider how it works then to seek the praise of men. We have in our heart the desire to be affirmed by others. I don't necessarily know you. I don't know all that's true of you and your life and your heart this morning. And yet I can say with confidence, everyone in this room desires to be affirmed. Every single person here has in their heart as one of the strongest desires, the most persistent desires, a desire to be accepted by others. And so strong is that desire that we would do just about anything to have it gratified. Even take those works which ought to be rendered unto God and so twist them that they become a means by which we find our security, our safety. Failing to acknowledge that what we should be doing is seeking our affirmation from God himself. That's where our sense of security and identity ought to come from, and he has made a way through Christ to be affirmed. As we put our faith in Christ so God accepts us fully, there's our affirmation. There's our acceptance. And so you see, to seek the praise of men is not only to rob God of his glory, but is also at the same time to make the crowd God himself. You've now put the crowd in the place of God and you're looking to them to give you what rightly belongs to God to bestow upon you through Christ. And which is it when we pursue these righteous deeds for the praise of men? What is our heart doing? Probably a mix of both. Seeking to take glory from God so that we may have it at the same time seeking to get affirmation from the crowd 
And our hearts today are no different from those who were following after Jesus in his day. In fact, I would say quite possibly this sin, this issue of doing righteous deeds for the affirmation of others is even more prevalent today perhaps than it was in Jesus' day. And the reason I say that is because we live in an age where the means of communication are so many, so many words, so many ideas being put out there through mediums which are designed to encourage you to seek the affirmation of others. So often the way in which we communicate with one another is through mediums which are inherently teaching us to seek the affirmation of others. Why else do you post but to get the likes? Why else do you put ideas and thoughts out there? Why else do you put photos up there but to receive the affirmation of others? And so subtly we can decide that that will be where our security will be found. Jesus says, be careful. You need to be very careful of living righteously. Why? Because if that's the way you go about your business, when you enter into glory, there will be no reward for you. Later on, he says, you saw the reward of others, you got it, and that is then your reward. You step into glory, there is now no reward. So just play out that thought in your own mind, very, very, very soon we will be in glory whether you're 15 or 50, you'll be in glory very soon. If you're a Christian here today, you have a glorious inheritance, a wonderful hope that the Bible sets forth. And let me be clear, that day will be a day of great celebration. When you step into glory, it will be untold celebration. There is no punitive judgment in that day. The believer steps into glory not fearing God's judgment. You are not going to be punished because all your sins have been accounted for at the cross. But there will be a judgment. There will be a judgment of believers that we read of in the scriptures, a judgment whereby God tests your works. He examines and he weighs your life. Everything you have ever done will be put out on display, motives and all. And God will test them so as to reward you. And again, I want to be clear, God will be rich towards us with his rewards. It will be such a wonderful day as God joyfully rewards us for those works that we have done, righteous deeds that were done with the motive of honoring him. But there will be some works that he passes over. As you stand in glory before Christ himself, there will be some works that God passes over. They get set aside. They don't receive any acknowledgement. You're not rewarded for them. Righteous, it would seem. Righteous deeds and yet receiving no reward. 
Now, there'll be no arguments in that day. You won't protest. God is a just God, and everyone will see fully that he is dealing with your life fairly. But if we were to petition, we might say, God, why, why didn't you reward me? You saw when I turned the other cheek, you know that when I was in the workplace and the unbeliever was belittling me for my faith in Christ, and you saw how I didn't retaliate. Why did you pass over that? He would say, because I also saw your heart. And I saw that you did that in order to be praised by others. God, you saw when I petitioned for my brother in Christ as he shared with me that trial during that terrible year of his life, and you know how often I was on my knees praying for him. Why no reward today? Because I also saw how you were praying in order to tell him that you had been praying for him. That was your driving motive. You wanted the affirmation of others. You received it then. There is no reward for you today. There'll be much reward in glory. But for the deeds done, for the praise of men, there will be nothing. And so Jesus says, be careful. Now, I do want to just pause for a minute and speak to any here today who hear that heavenly vision as given to us in the scriptures, the day when the believer, the one who has followed after Christ, put their faith fully in him, steps into glory and is rewarded by a father in heaven. If you hear that heavenly vision and your conscience is in no means disturbed at the idea of your works being passed over, if you hear that and you're not disturbed in any way about the idea of getting before a, an almighty God and yet him not rewarding you for good deeds, it might be because none of your deeds are done for him. The lack of any disturbance of your conscience might be because all of your deeds are done for the praise of men, which is to say you don't actually follow after Christ as a disciple. It might be. Examine your heart today and question whether you've ever put your faith in Christ. And if you have not, understand that you will not enter into glory. If you have not put your faith in Christ, you will not enter into glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks to the Corinthians about the rewards that they receive for their good deeds. And he says, if you didn't do it for the Lord, your deeds will be burnt up. You will enter into glory, but escaping as through fire. And we might say the logical inference from that passage for the one that has not put their faith in Christ is that they will not escape through the fire. The Bible is clear. If you have not submitted to Christ as your Savior and your Lord, you do not enter into glory, but you suffer an eternal and ongoing punishment. And I would plead with you today to repent of your sin and to trust in Christ. Now, if that's the warning, what's the instruction? How do we remedy doing righteous deeds for the praise of others, Jesus gives us two examples through which he instructs us. The first example, beginning in verse 2, he says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. 
Now, the hypocrites here, most likely in Jesus' mind, foremost amongst the hypocrites were the Pharisees. As you study through the Sermon on the Mount, there is this strong polemic against the Pharisees and all that they had been teaching. I do believe foremost in his mind are the Pharisees, and yet he chooses to use the word hypocrites. And I think that is because he wants to show just how widely applicable this teaching is. It is not merely a sin of the Pharisees, but even his disciples could well embark upon this doing righteous deeds for the praise of men. And so he says, don't do what the hypocrites do, and they give to the needy sounding a trumpet. We don't have any record of trumpets being sounded, and so most likely this is a metaphor that Jesus uses just to highlight the issue The contrast, he says, when you give to the needy, verse 3, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Again, this is the flip side of the metaphor. You either sound the trumpet or you pursue your righteousness with such secrecy that even your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. Jesus knows that's not possible. He's using hyperbolic language. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about lust, he does the same thing. He says, cut off your hand and gouge out your eye. Jesus knows that won't solve the problem. He's using this hyperbolic language just to enforce in our minds how fierce the fight should be against the problem. Give with such secrecy, with such an attitude of secrecy in your heart, that if it were possible, your left hand wouldn't know what your right hand is doing. That's when you receive a reward. Or the second example, when you pray, again, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray out loud. Again, think about just how ugly sin can be in our own hearts, that it may even be possible that we pray out loud before others who are listening, and we might say such words as, God, we praise you, And Jesus is saying, it's entirely possible to pray that prayer with the intent of your heart being, let me be praised. Don't pray in that way, he says. Rather, go into your room, shut the door, and pray in the uttermost secret place. They don't need to hear your prayer because you're praying to your Father who is in heaven. Now again, Jesus knows, having just taught about this great greater righteousness in chapter 5, so much of it played out in the public sphere, Jesus knows that his disciples cannot possibly obey the entirety of his word and yet conduct their whole lives in secret. He's giving here a principle. I do think practically you ought to consider which of your righteous deeds could be conducted in secret Practically, there are probably some righteous deeds that you could conduct in secret. But where there aren't, where the the righteous deed has to be done in the view of others, Jesus is teaching the disposition of our heart ought to be one of the utmost secrecy. We're not doing this for the praise of men. I'm not doing this to be seen by others, to be affirmed by others. I'm doing it for the pleasure of my Father who is in heaven. I was wrestling through this text over the last few weeks, just thinking about the danger of being in any kind of 
leadership position in the church, as a pastor to lead God's people in prayer regularly, to preach God's word to his people, to encourage the saints to to love one another and to obey God's word and then to lead by example means that you are persistently living your life within the view of others and how regularly we need to keep our hearts in check to ensure that our motives are not there seeking the praise of men. Nikolaus Zindendorf is a pastor from many hundreds of years ago, and he famously said that he considered his goal to be to preach the gospel, to die and to be forgotten. I pray that regularly, that God would give me a desire to be forgotten. It should be the attitude by which we all pursue our Christian life. The question is how. How do we rid ourselves of this deep desire to be praised by others? How do we genuinely go about our service in the church, our acts of good deeds for one another, in such a way that we desire to honor our Father in heaven and it matters not to us whether others see what we're doing? Seventeen times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus refers to God as father. Ten of those times are in this section. Seventeen times throughout the three chapters, Jesus refers to God as father. Ten of those times are within just this one section. It's important to observe that because it seems as Jesus teaches these difficult teachings He is pushing us towards a consideration of the fact that our holy God is also our loving Father. And in that way, I would say the way in which you rid yourself of this deep-seated desire for the praise of men is simply to preach the truth of the gospel to your own heart, which is to say you minister daily the reality that you have a loving heavenly Father who accepts you completely in Christ. Therefore, you don't need the praise of men. Again, you minister to your own heart the truth of the gospel. You have a heavenly Father who loves you fully in Christ. He sent his Son to die on the cross for you. His love receives its highest expression as his son hangs on a cross for your sin. He loves you completely. And as you teach your heart that truth, you don't need the praise of men. As you teach your heart that truth, then you are free to pursue a life of righteousness seeking a heavenly reward and not the praise of men. Would you pray with me now to close? Our Father, we thank you for this teaching from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. We recognize and confess our own failings deep desires in our hearts to be affirmed by others. 
deep desires to be rewarded by men, deep desires to receive glory that rightly belongs to you. We pray that you would forgive us. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. You're a holy God. You're also our loving heavenly Father. Because of the perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the triumphant resurrection of the Lord Jesus, you are our heavenly Father. You love us completely in Christ, so we don't need the praise of men. Father, we ask that you would embed these truths deep in our hearts this morning. Help us to rehearse the gospel to ourselves and to one another, week after week. And may that set us free to live righteously, not seeking the praise of men, but for your good pleasure, knowing that you will one day reward us when we step into glory. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.